Mac Myers has with him today a group of friends from the University of Florida. And they did just that. I mean, they were up in here playing drums and tambourines and singing. So thank you, guys. We like that. I remember the first time I ever visited Grace Church. We were down here on Waukesha Street. Uh, they let me set one Sunday, and the next Sunday I was making announcements. So I say to you, if you are worshiping with us for the first time, be ready for next week, all right? We'll be, have you up here playing a guitar or doing something. Welcome. It's good to be back with you. I slipped off a little bit last week to do some preaching on uh, the other side of the county, actually the next county over. And they uh, promptly ran me out of there and sent me back Bonifay. But I am appreciative of Dr. John Wilson who can step in because when I'm gone, you do not go hungry, right? So thank you, Doc. We appreciate that so much. Uh, find your place with me where we left off in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter number 2 is where we are today. So I'm going to read uh, 9 verses out of chapter number 2. Are you there? All right, here we go. Bible says beginning in verse 2, and remember now what's going on here. Uh, Jonah is the prophet, right? He's the man of God. God gives him a commission, says, Jonah, go down to Nineveh. Jonah says, uh-uh, ain't doing it. So instead of making a right-hand turn going to Nineveh, Jonah turns to the east, heads down to Joppa, gets on a ship, and he's running from the presence of the Lord because Jonah is not going to Nineveh. So here we are in chapter number 2. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the stomach of a fish. And he said... I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple." Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my Elohim, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away... I remembered Yahweh, the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Well, I have to confess, when I was considering preaching through the book of Jonah, this is the text that almost made me decide to go somewhere else. Because I knew if I started preaching in chapter 1, chapter 2 was coming. And chapter 2 is just a little bit different as you can see, and it's problematic especially for preachers, and it, I knew it was going to be for me. So I said, no, we're just going to faith this thing and hope that God opens it up before I get to it. So here we are in Jonah chapter 2, and you can see that it's a different type of literature. As a matter of fact, those of you who know me know that my wheelhouse is pericope and historical narrative. 
give me a good old-fashioned story and boy, we'll just clear us out of place and preach. But now this is different. This is kind of psalm, it's kind of poetry, and it's kind of prayer. So we've got a change of genre. And when we have a change of genre, we have to treat it a little bit differently. But in order to get our hands around this text or, or our arms around it, what we must do is simply remember our exegetical skills and try to get to the heart of what this passage is. So the heart of this passage is clearly, as you can see just from a precursory reading, is Jonah the prophet was running from God. He said no to God. And boy, you put yourself in a dangerous position when you say no to God. He was on a ship and the ship was about to break up because the Lord hurled a great wind and a great storm at the ship. The sailors were on board saying, we're going to find out why this has fallen upon us. They rolled dice and it comes out that Jonah is the problem. So they go to Jonah and Jonah explains to them what he's doing and they say, how can you do this thing? They say, what should we do to you in order that this storm will not kill us. So Jonah says, tell you what, pick me up and throw me overboard. So here he is. He has been thrown overboard, end of chapter 1. Now chapter 2, we have this psalm, this piece of poetry, and this prayer that Jonah is praying. And it's pretty obvious that the heart of the text is this. Jonah is almost dead. Do you see that? He repeats several times, I, I was fainting away. I, I, I was almost gone. And then I remembered Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So here's the heart of the text, and here's what I want to speak to you about for just a little while this morning. Looking at life from the brink of death. Because that's where Jonah was. I mean, he was almost done. He was on the very brink. He was on the very verge of expiring. And as I wrestled with this thing this week, it wasn't until about Thursday morning until I really got to the heart of the text and saw what was going on in Jonah's specific context. And lo and behold, Friday morning, I get up and I have a forwarded email from Dr. John Wilson. And here's what the email said. It said, is Dr. Allen available to call so-and-so at this number? And Dr. Wilson says, do you recognize this? And I said, yeah, I do. I'll handle it. So I went and picked up my phone and I called. And it was one of my, I hate to say childhood friends, but that's true because he and I were best buds from the time we were in grade school all the way up until I left on this ministry path to go and preach. As a matter of fact, he and I farmed together all through high school. Through high school, me and this guy probably planted about 350, 400 acres of row crop. I mean, we were, we were part of the young farmers of Mississippi. And our past just kind of drifted apart as he went one way and then I went into ministry. Haven't heard from him in probably close to 30 years. And I get an email Friday morning that, Apparently his wife got online and Googled me and found me at Grace Church and sent an email to the Grace Church account. Is that right, Dr. John? So I called him and I said, man, what in the world is going on? I said, I'm really embarrassed to call you because I have 
always wanted to call you and sit down with you and catch up what's going on in your world. This is what he said. He said, you know, my dad died Sunday. And he said, Monday morning, I was on the road headed back to Picayune, Mississippi and Bogalusa, Louisiana because I was going to see some relatives that I haven't seen in about 20 years. And he said, I told my wife when I get back from Bogalusa, we're going to look up Richie Allen. And I called him and he says, you know, life just has a way of getting in your business. And he said, we haven't seen people who are dear to us in 25 years, and we always keep saying we're going to do it. He said, but when my dad died, that caused me to look at things differently. And he said, I'm not living like this anymore. So he said, I'm going to start doing things now that matter. So that's why I'm calling you. You see, he was looking at life, and it wasn't from the brink of his own death, but he was looking at life from the perspective of his father's death. As a matter of fact, there's a country song. Is it, uh, who's that boy that lives in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, married Faith Hill? Tim McGraw. Is Tim McGraw the one that has the, uh, and I, all y'all don't be spiritual. We don't listen to country music, brother, is you? <laughs> if Casting Crowns don't sing it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> and the most spiritual guy in the building hollers out, Tim McGraw! <laughs> Take a spiritual guy to admit that, don't it, Doc? <laughs> Doesn't Tim McGraw have that song that says, Live Like You Were Dying? Is that who it is? You know, there is something about that. Let a bomb go off near you and somebody close die, or if you have a near-death experience, I promise you, you will start looking at things differently. And you see, that's exactly what happened to Jonah. The old boy was almost done. Matter of fact, he thought he was done. And something happened. In that moment when his life was fleeing away, he remembered Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is what he said. So let's look at this subject for a little while this morning and see what principles we can apply to our life as we look at life from the brink of death. What do you see when you look at it from that vantage point? Well, here's what you see. You see, number one, that some bad things were really a blessing. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we think stuff that has come our way is bad. Oh my goodness. But when we look back, we see what God was doing in it, and we realize sometimes that th things that seemed to be bad were really a blessing in disguise. And I think that's what Jonah is saying here. Notice some of the things that were bad that turned out to be the faithful hand of Almighty God in stopping a running prophet from running headlong off a cliff in disobedience to God. Number one, what was the first bad thing that came his way? Well, verse number 2a says distress. Check this out. Look in verse number 2 what Jonah says. He says, I called out of my comfort zone... From my, from my lazy boy recliner in my living room, from the padded seat of the Sanctuary of Grace Church, no, where did he do business with God? He said, I called unto the covenant-keeping God out of my distress. 
You know, that's what it takes sometimes. I'll never forget in seminary, there was a boy in Aska, as one of our profs, he said, Doc, what do we do about people who claim to be believers and they were a part of the church for a long time and they just fell out and they have no interest anymore in spiritual things. They're just doing their own thing with giving no regard to God. What do you do with them? Here's what the prop says. He can't do anything with them, son. I'm sorry. He said, all you can do is pray for them and stand beside them when God breaks them down to nothing. Because that's what he's doing. So listen to me. You're watching me on Facebook Live this morning and your take on church now is you're just going to sit home and watch on the internet. Look here, you got distress coming your way. You got distress, and you might think it's bad, but it's really going to be a blessing because God's going to use distress to get you to calling back on Him. That's what He uses. He uses distress. Let me walk on through this. Not only do we see that Jonah had something bad happen to him, turn out to be a blessing, it was distress that caused him to call upon the Lord. Notice, it's amazing to me that when he was on that ship pitching and tossing and rolling in the sea, when the sailors were praying, that's pretty bad, isn't it? The sailors took up praying. They come to Jonah and say, Who are you? And the captain said, Man, call on your God. Maybe he will spare us. Jonah never prayed. You see, being in a, in a storm-tossed ship on the Mediterranean Sea with, with, with sailors who are probably seasick and never been seasick in their life, and they're asking him to pray, that wasn't distress enough. Jonah hadn't got distressed yet, but distress is coming. And it's coming for you. And you might be today in that part to where, you know, you're just in a storm-tossed ship, but you're not praying yet. Hey, when distress hits you, you'll start praying. Somebody said when the big thing of prayer in school was going on, and it still is, somebody said, oh, there will always be prayer in school as long as professors are giving hard tests. <laughs> That's right. That's distress sometimes. But notice what else. Not only did God send distress His way, that was a bad thing, but we also see Jonah's descent. His descent. Now, look with me here in verse number 6. Jonah says it himself. He uses the word. He said, I descended to the roots of the mountains. But can I say to you, Jonah didn't start a downward spiral when the sailors threw him overboard, Jonah started a downward spiral when he said no to God. Because when you say no to God, there's only one direction you can go. And it's not up, and it's not lateral, it's down. So the Bible says he went down to Joppa. He found a sailing ship and he went down into the ship. And now the sailors throw him overboard. Anybody want to guess which way he's going? Here's the Ritchie translation. He sunk like a rock. And he went all the way down and he's talking about went down to the roots of the mountains. I mean, where do mountains start? Well, some of them start two miles below the ocean, you know. Now, I'm sure Jonah didn't go that far, but he went down. Have you ever known anybody who's been on the mountaintop and God broke them down to nothing? I heard about a man last night who has made about five fortunes and lost every one of them. That's a descent. Hey, listen. There's a great hill in your future going downward if you're running from God. Because you're not going to win running from God. And get this. 
you're not going to end up in a high place running from God. You just cannot. So here a descent came upon Jonah's life. Number one, there was distress. Bad thing turned out to be good. There was a descent, and that was a bad thing turned out to be good. Now let me talk to you about three things as it relates to this descent. Number one, let me talk to you about arrogance. Why was it that Jonah wasn't afraid to be thrown overboard? And you know, this is all just conjecture, but here's what I think it was. I think it was probably Jonah's arrogance. I think he told those sailors, throw him overboard. I mean, he was a young man. Was he not? I think Jonah said, you know, we haven't sailed very long. We can't be far from the shore. The sailors even tried to row back to shore. And I bet Jonah in his pride and in his arrogance thinking, throw me overboard. I think I can tread water until this storm calms down and I can probably swim back. I can probably still get myself out of this situation. So it's probably arrogance. Now here's the thing. Your descent, in order for it to be effective, has got to be greater than your pride. Did you hear me? Your distress has got to overwhelm your feelings of adequacy. Because if you're just in a little bit of hot water, you may be able to get yourself out of that. If you haven't gone very far from land and you're thrown overboard, you might think that, you know, I, I trained as an Olympic swimmer. I can get back to shore. But for it to be effective, here's what God knows. The descent has to completely overwhelm and bankrupt your own ability, your arrogance, and your pride. And listen to me, that's what God will do. He'll overwhelm you with it. Because He loves you too much to let you continue to say no to Him and continue to run in the opposite direction. So I want us to notice some arrogance here. And this descent completely took care of arrogance, did it not? Why was Jonah not praying on the ship? i tell you why. Because he didn't think he needed God yet. He still had hope that he could get himself out of this situation. But when he hit the water and he goes down to the root of the mountain, guess where pride goes? It's done. Jonah's at the brink of death. He's relied on his own ability right up to where he is knocking on death's door. That has a way of humbling folk, does it not? And God got him there on purpose. So first we see arrogance. Next, I want you to see it, something else. I want you to see his awareness. His awareness. Look at verse number 3. Notice what Jonah said. For you, underline that word, you had cast me into the deep. Now, who was it that threw Jonah overboard? It was the sailors. But all of a sudden, he's becoming aware now of the hand of God in his life, is he not? He says, it really wasn't those old salty sailors that threw me overboard. God, you cast me into the deep. Now check out this other thing right here uh, in verse number 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. Underline this, this word. All of your, underline that. All of your breakers and billows passed over me. 
Do you see what he's saying? Jonah is giving a great theological statement here of the sovereign control of Almighty God. He says this is not just happenstance. This is not a summer squall that just popped up out of nowhere. God, you are the orchestrator of these events. These waves are yours. They are obeying your voice and you caused them to come over me. Son, from the point of death, from the brink of death, you begin to look at things theologically, do you not? And you know, that, that's really what we've got to do. We've got to learn to interpret life and circumstances through theological lenses. And Jonah wasn't willing to do that until that old boy hit the bottom. And now he's looking at life from the very point of death. You know, death, it really is a spiritual thing. Did you know that? It's a theological thing. Uh, it's a great time to minister. Because, man, that's when, 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 when life and belief and theology all come together. Because everybody wants to know what goes on about the time you die. So I want to tell you, when you get close to death, you begin to look at things differently. I have never stood at somebody's deathbed and had them confess to me, Preacher, I wish I'd have spent more time deer hunting. They just don't. I've never had anybody say, Preacher, I could have had a lot of money if I'd have just focused myself in my job. I've never had anybody say that. You know what they always talk about? They always talk about things that I'm thinking, Dear God, why couldn't you have seen this 20 years ago? Because they're at the brink of death and now they're looking at life differently. They talk about things that matter, Jerry. They talk about family. They talk about the Lord. They talk about what God called them to do and they didn't do it for some reason. If you've never been at somebody's deathbed when that's going on, the next time I'm there, I'm going to call you. Just give me your number. Text me your number. It's amazing how death brings people to a point of seeing things from a spiritual perspective. And here Jonah is, now he has awareness. But notice number next. Not only does this descent include arrogance and awareness but it also in, it embodies his appeal in verse number 1. Because notice his appeal. Look what he says. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. You see that word capital L, capital O-R-D? I had a professor that would not let us. I had an Old Testament prof that if we pronounced that Lord, I mean it was like he would take a ruler out of his desk and strike us across the knuckles. We just couldn't do it. Every time we saw that in an English text, we had to pronounce it Yahweh. That's why I still do it out of habit today. When I say, Lord, I'm looking over my shoulder to see if he's behind me. Because he was a tough old bird. and He'd crack you over the head if he had to to get some Hebrew into you. But here's what this, this means. The, Yahweh, it's so hard for us to get our, names or, uh, our arms around what that word means. But it refers to the covenant-keeping faithful God. So here Jonah is. What is the basis of his appeal? He is a running prophet. He's got his honey in a peach because he's been running from God. Now he's at the bottom of the sea, at the root of the mountain, and he appeals his only appeal. Listen to me. His only appeal is to God's faithfulness because he hadn't been. See what I'm saying? There's no way Jonah could say anything that would commend him to God in this point. He said, God, if you act, it'll be out of nothing but your covenant faithfulness. 
Because I know what I deserve. I deserve to slip on through these bars and through the doors of death. But if you choose to act, it's not because of me, it's because of you. Do you know what that is in the New Testament language? Get this. That's praying in the name of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why? At the end of our prayers we always say, And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. What does that mean? Is that just to add a little bit of extra spirituality to it? No. Here's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, let me, let me read an excerpt that I brought from my doctoral dissertation because I was trying to prove this point as I was talking about prayer. And it comes from a letter that somebody wrote from R.A. From Torrey when he was doing a seminar on prayer. And here's what the man said that wrote to Dr. Torrey. He said, I am in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will. But I do not get it. I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer and I can't understand why. Can you explain it to me? Dr. Torrey's letter back. Or Dr. Torrey's reply. This man thinks that because he's been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25, and an elder in the church that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. You see, this man is really praying in his own name, not the name of Christ. And when we approach God that way, he will not hear us. Friend, listen to me. I don't care who you are, how spiritual you are, what your resume looks like. When you come before the throne of grace, it is a throne of grace. You can't put out your spiritual resume and expect God to roll out a red carpet and say, Oh, I didn't know it was you. Come on in. When we go before Him, son, listen. We go before Him and we say, God, I am totally bankrupt of anything that would, that would commend me to you in your presence. I have no, My righteousness is as filthy rags. But God, one day on Calvary's cross, your son died and his blood was put on my account. And because his blood was put on my account, my sin was taken away. His righteousness was credited to me. And I come to you today not because of who I am, but because of who he is. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And then God's ready to listen. But here was Jonah prior to that when he wouldn't pray. Oh, he was so arrogant. He probably thought God ought to listen to him because of what he's done and because everything that's on his spiritual resume up to now. But hear me. When you get to the point of death and you're looking at life from the other side, you know that you don't have a leg to stand on. Am I right? And Jonah didn't have a leg to stand on. Well, check this out. Not only do we see distress and not only do we see dissent, but we see deliverance. Now, Pastor Richie, how is deliverance a bad thing? that really turned out to be a blessing. Have you noticed the mode of deliverance? Because here's what we have to understand before we can really get to the heart of this text. Notice this. Notice the language. Jonah said, Then I prayed to the Lord... Or, or then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Jonah speaking in verse 2, I called out of my distress 
And he answered me. Now check out where Jonah is. Where, is, where was Jonah when he voiced this prayer? See, that's what everybody thinks. He was in the belly of the fish. He was not. He was still outside in the water. Do you see what he says? Look what he says. Uh, let me walk you through this. I called out of my distress to the Lord. And look, uh, he says, you heard me. Now look where he's, he's at in verse number 3. Your breakers and billows passed over me. Uh, check out again in verse number 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. And that's where he was when he prayed. Jonah was in a tight spot. He was drowning. Drowning. And he called upon the Lord. And notice what he says. He said, the Lord answered me. Now, now that you know where Jonah was when he was praying, what was the mode of deliverance? What was God's answer to Jonah's prayer? A what? A fish eating. Son, how bad a day do you have to be having for a fish eating you to be God's answer to prayer, huh? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? On any, on any other day of his life, Jonah would have considered that to be horrible. I got swallowed by fish. But hear me, when you're almost laying lifeless on a sandbar, because that's how one of these words translates, laying lifeless on a sandbar and a big old giant, what they call them, grouper fish, a Jew fish, comes up and inhales you like you're a, 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 a dang dead shrimp. <laughs> that's a pretty good thing, is it not? And that's what happened. See, on any other day, that would have been a bad thing. On this day, it was a wonderful thing. Because that fish was God's answer to Jonah's prayer. That fish was the mode of deliverance. That fish is what God used to save him. I heard one of these guys last night say that he missed a test that he thought was online, but was really in person. And the prophet wasn't going to let him take it unless he had a medical excuse. He said, you know, I had a horrible sinus infection this week and I've been at the doctor. Now, I bet Monday of this week, who was that? I bet on Monday you thought a sinus infection was a horrible thing, didn't you? On Friday, you was pretty hip for that sinus infection, were you not? It saved you, honey, didn't it? You see, and that's exactly what's going on here with Jonah. He was outside and now a fish eats him up. So he's not praying from the belly of the fish. Jonah was praying when he was out there about to die in the water. Check this out. Number next, looking at life from the brink of death, you see that some bad things were a blessing. You also see that some good things were bad. Some good things were really bad. Now check this out in verse number 8 because verses 1 through 7 go together. Then verses 8 stands alone and verse 9 stands alone. And look what Jonah says. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now, here's what we have to do with this verse. We have to figure out to whom was Jonah talking. Have you ever known anybody that when they pray publicly they really ain't praying, they're preaching? You ever know anybody who preached through their prayers? <laughs> I'll probably do it here in a little while. <laughs> Just stand by. You'll see a good example of it in just a minute. 
I don't think Jonah was preaching to somebody else on the outside in the world of the living. I think Jonah was talking about himself. So we got to figure out how are these idols that he talks about, how are they identified? Notice what verse number 8 says. Those who regard vain idols. That word vain means empty, it means dead, it means that which cannot help you. Hey, now look, if we talk about this strictly as an idol of physical nature that some folk have, and oh, I have seen them on the mission field where folks have statues that they literally worship. Can I ask you this question? In Jonah's predicament, what good could an idol made out of wood do him? <laughs> it might have been. It might have been a piece of driftwood, huh? They could have <laughs> him up. That's about all we can fathom right there. So I don't really think he's talking about physical idols. I think he's talking about other types of idols. Here's what Tim Keller says an idol is. Are you ready? Pastor Tim Keller says an idol is anything that you look at and you say, man, if I just had that, my life would be better. If I could just get to that position in life, I would have it made. An idol can be, it can be a job. An idol can be family. An idol can be dollars. An idol can just be a personal preference that you have. And here's what Jonah says. Jonah says, those who follow, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I think Jonah was talking about himself. You know why? Because he had an idol. And his idol was doing ministry his way, not God's, right? He had created Daniel this image of what he wanted ministry to be and look like. And when God said, no, I want you to do this, Jonah said, no, I'm not forsaking what I want to do for what you want to do. That is an idol. And I think Jonah's talking about himself. He's just confirming, hey, I have regarded a vain idol and I have forsaken my faithfulness. So number one, we see how idols are identified. Number two, we see why they are villainized. Check this out. Look, what, look at the word Jonah uses. Those who regard... You see that word right there? You may want to put some quotes around it because in other places that word is translated like this. It's translated as guard. Those who guard idols. And here's the picture that it gives. It gives the picture of this being a stake. And around that stake is a logging chain. And on the other end of that logging chain is about a 90-pound pit bulldog. Are you with me? And whatever that you want to be safe, you put on this table that has that stake in the ground with a logging chain and a vicious pit bulldog on the other end. Do you know what happens if you come into the circumference of that chain? I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to leave that circumference with some water holes in your honey. Huh? Because that dog is going to viciously guard whatever's on this table. And Jonah says, those who guard idols. Now watch me. Here's what we do. We get that thing in our heart that we guard. Because that's really what we want. That's what we're after. And if somebody gets close to it, you attack them. Because you justify that in your own heart. And if somebody wants to get it, 
you'll attack them. Hey, have you ever had anybody involved in something and, and you, it was one of your good friends and you was afraid to talk to them about it because you know when you talked to them about it they were going to get mad at you? You know what that is? That's guarding a vain idol. Hey, have you ever had anything in your life that you didn't want anybody to touch? And if they did, you lashed out at them. Hundreds of things that it could be. I know folks that are involved in religion, Pastor Daniel, and it's empty, but yet you invite them to experience a grace-filled relationship with Jesus Christ and maybe come to a church that would be an avenue or vehicle to help them from get to point A to point B, and you know what they'll do? So they'll lash out at you because they will guard that idol. They'll hold on to it, and they'll eat you up if you get close to it. You see, that's what Jonah says going on here. He says, those who do that forsake their faithfulness. Now, you see that word faithfulness? Underline it. It is, besides Yahweh, it's the second most difficult Hebrew word in the Old Testament to translate. Here's the word, hesed. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it's... it's, it's, it's it's translated as graceful faithfulness. Other times it's translated as covenant love. I mean, it's just that we don't have the English expressions to get our hand around it. And here's what Jonah says. You go ahead and guard an idol in your heart and you are forsaken grace. Does anybody's translation just say grace? There you go, Jerry. What's it say? Read it for us. Their own mercy. You see, I like that. That's that word hesed. It's sometimes translated mercy. It's sometimes translated as grace. But you know what these, you know what an idol is? Here's what I call it. They're grace blockers. Grace blockers. God wants to bless you, but He's not going to bless you as long as you've got that bulldog tied to that idol in your life. You've got abundant grace available to you that God wants to send and wash wave after wave after wave of grace. But guess what? That old bulldog sitting here saying, uh-uh, don't you get close to me. Don't get in this circumference. And you are literally depriving yourself of the grace and mercy and loving kindness that God wants to wash over your life today because you've got a grace blocker in your life that you're guarding. Now, who in their right mind, Ben, would do that? You want me to answer that for you? You're exactly right. I would. Because that's what sin makes us. It makes us stupid. But here's what the Spirit of God does. He'll put His finger on that thing. And at first, you want to get mad at God. You ever been there? Anybody got mad at God? You want to lash out at God because He just, he just touched something that you're guarding. But He'll keep on, keep on, keep on. And eventually you'll cut that bulldog loose and God will say, now I can bless you. Now you can have grace. Now you can have mercy. i got to hurry. It's already 11.45. Here we go. Notice number next. When you look at life from the brink of death, you see that some bad things were actually a blessing. You see that some good things were actually bad. And you see some opportunities you'd like to have back. Anybody there? Thank you, Justin. Perry, you, you ever mess something up? 
You say, boy, I wish I had that over. I wish I had a mulligan on that one. Wish I had to do again. Well, look, that, that ain't nothing compared to what's going to come rushing in on us if we're running from God. And we get to looking back at life from the brink of death. There's going to be a lot of things we wish we had back to do again. Number one, notice what Jonah says here that he wished he had back in number one. Well, I think it comes in, in verse number four. Let me bring this first one. Here's what Jonah says. He said, I wish I had the opportunity back because I would be more prayerful. I'd be more prayerful. And here's what the Hebrew scholars can't get their mind around. How can Jonah make this statement in, uh, in verse number 4? He's dying, but yet he makes a statement of faith. He says, nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, I don't think he's talking about a physical temple. You know why? Because notice uh, what he says in verse number 7. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. So what is Jonah saying when he says, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, I am going to live to pray another day. And he says, I'm going to do life. If I ever get out of here, if I ever get pulled up from the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to be a more prayerful prophet. Boy, that's a pretty good thing, ain't it? A prayerful prophet. And that's what Jonah says. Man, I love this stuff. Notice, notice what Jonah says. He says in verse number, number 2, You heard my voice. And then in verse number 7, My prayer came to you. Hey, if you really believe God hears you when you call out to Him in the name of Jesus, how insane is it not to call out? <laughs> that you could have an audience with God. If you really believe that our prayers reach Him in the holy presence of sacredness and the throne room of glory, why would we not call out? And notice, I want you to see this as well. You see verse number 6, A, B, and C. You see that but right there? Man, that might be one of the most important buts in the Bible. It's equivalent to Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 4. For you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God... And here Jonah was at the depths of the ocean. And look at verse number 6c. But you have brought up my life again. And why did he do it? Because the prophet returned to prayer on the brink of death. Check this out. Some opportunities you want back to be more prayerful. Jonah prayed. And here's, here's, here's grace group. Y'all ready for grace group stuff? Here's grace group stuff. How many psalms does Jonah quote in, this, in these few verses? And what are those psalms? You know what Jonah did? Jonah prayed God's Word. Hey, Colin gave us a book about how to do that, how to pray God's Word. And here Jonah is simply returning to God his Word in a form of a petition. And you know what that is? That's why we had Miss Sandra read John chapter 15 this morning because here's what Jesus said. Abide in me and my Word abide in you. Then ask whatever you will and it will be given to you. Hey, you know why? Because you can't pray God's word to him and him not respond to it because God's word contains God's will. You can't ask a misc if you're praying God's word. And that's what Jonah did. He simply returned God's word unto him because his word was in his heart. Hey, don't think Jonah was, was a bad believer. He wasn't. He had hidden God's word in his heart. And now here on the brink of death, 
His soul is flooded with God's Word coming back to his mind. Check out number next. Not only does Jonah say, Boy, I'd like to have life back. I'd live it more prayerfully. But he also says, If I had the opportunity back again, I would live joyfully according to your purpose. Look in verse number 9a. This is what he says. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. He didn't say, I'm going I'm to begrudgingly do what you want me to do. I don't think he was talking about making an animal sacrifice here. I think he's talking about sacrificing his will to God's will. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't like those folk, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose your will now rather than my will. So I'm going to sacrifice. You know, that's kind of Pauline language, is it not? To be a living sacrifice. So Jonah pledges that I'm going to be... If I had it all over to do again, Yahweh, I'd be a living sacrifice unto you. And I'd say, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's a pretty good thing to say, is it not? Number next, got to hurry. Not only he said, if I had it all over again, I'd, I'd do it joyfully and I'd live according to your purpose. Next, in verse 9c, he said, if I had to do it all over again, if I had it back, I'd live consistently with my profession. With my profession, look in verse 9c. That which I have vowed, I will repay. You know what he's probably talking about? He's probably talking about that prophetic vow that prophets would make when God would call them and they would be anointed to be the mouthpiece of God. I think Jonah's going back to that. Probably his ordination service. He's going back to it and he's saying, that which I have vowed, I'll do it. I'll pay. I'm going to live consistent with what I have said, my profession. And what I say I am, I'm going to be. What I said I'll do, I'm going to do. Man, death has a way of getting us right down to brass tacks, doesn't it? And sometimes death and only death will do it. That's why my prof said, you just be around until God breaks them in distress and in their descent. Hey, don't, don't wait that long. And then finally, this is what he said. If I had to do it all over again, I'd publish a clear proclamation. Check this out. Here's the proclamation. This could be called the gospel of Jonah because here is a clear gospel presentation. You know what he says? Verse 9d, look what he says. Salvation is from Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God, the granter of hesed, mercy and grace and loving kindness and faithfulness, salvation is from Him. That word salvation can mean physical deliverance. Hey, you in a bind today? Here's where your help's going to come from. It's going to come from Yahweh. Hey, are you lost today and struggling? Here's where your help's going to come from. Oh, would to God we'd come to the end of our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency and we'd lay it all out before God and say, God, I can't do this if it's going to get done going to get done because you're a faithful God. Salvation is from the Lord. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, help us today live from the perspective of Jonah. God, I do not pray that you take any of us to the point of death before we see things from a clear perspective. 
Help us, God, to look through Jonah's glasses today. And help us understand and realize the same thing that Jonah realized as his life was passing away from him. God, many times we're not going to respond until that's exactly what happens. So I pray today that someone has come to the end of their pride. Someone has come to the end of their self-sufficiency. Someone has come to the end of guarding a vain idol that will never be able to help them. And I pray, God, out of your hesed, your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness, you are drawing them to yourself today where they can see that salvation only comes from the Lord. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Him. So I pray, Father, today someone's going to call out in the name of Jesus, not in our own silly accomplishments, but in the name and in the merit of Jesus that someone's going to call out and their voice is going to rise to your holy temple and you're going to hear them today and you're going to send deliverance. I pray for those who've never been born again need to place their faith in Jesus and trust in what He has done for them. I pray for those who need to respond to your voice leading them to be a part of a church that will help invest in them and grow them and disciple them and mature them. I pray for those, God, who today you're calling to something and they've been saying, no, I'm not going there. And today you've turned them around. God, could we, like Jonah, say, this day I'm going to live consistently with what you have said and with the name that I profess. So as our guys lead us in this closing course, Colin Dollar is going to be up here, our director of college students. Dr. John Wilson is going to be up here. God said something to you today and you need to pray with someone. You need someone to help you hold you accountable. Just slip out and come and let one of us pray with you. And we'll help you walk through, sort out what the Lord's saying. But in Jesus' name, don't say no today because it'll just get more difficult tomorrow. Distress might be even worse because God's going to win. So won't we surrender today? You come.